Hello, and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. My guest this week is Professor Linda Hogan, Fellow of Trinity College Dublin. What the COVID crisis has done is really allowed us to take a time to pause and to ask ourselves, is this the kind of society that we want to live in? What kind of future do we want for coming generations? And is the lifestyle that we have adopted sustainable? Linda's a professor of ecumenics and former vice provost of the college. She sees a vital role for colleges not just to be centres of excellence for teaching, but engines of research and ethical thought leadership. I think universities really have to be very clear advocates for a set of values that are you know, rooted in truth, integrity, accuracy, uh, and, and also committed to the public good and uh, you know, research for good in a way. Later in the podcast, Linda talks about her love of music and the great women singers of the past, like Sarah Vaughan, Dinah Washington and Ella Fitzgerald. She says they teach us so much about struggle and resilience. Linda also talks about her love of fashion. She reads widely about designers and their lives and their stories, and she believes there's a need for a rethink about sustainability in the industry worldwide. I think it's becoming a really important issue in terms of fast fashion and, um, you know, the sustainability of the fashion industry. And I, you know, see a lot of great innovations in terms of, you know, pre-loved fashion now and uh, actually really changing that industry in a way to return it, I think, to the, you know, fundamentals about quality and design and durability. But I began by asking Linda about her own journey to leadership. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And I know you've had a fantastic career in Trinity College Dublin, but did you go to college in Trinity in the beginning? I'm from uh, County Kilkenny, uh, Angie, uh, from Callan, small town. I went to the Sisters of Mercy in, in Callan and then took a degree in theology and history at Maynooth, did my master's in theology there, and then went to Trinity College to do a PhD. Um, I was uh, actually not at all certain about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to study at college, and I thought that um, once I did my primary degree that I would go on and do a law degree, actually, but I got captivated by academia, by research, by the topic of religion and its intersection with issues of gender and equality. And uh, so I pursued that path and uh, really haven't looked back since. Where did you uh, start your academic career? Did you start in Trinity? So I did, as I said, I did a PhD in Trinity and then I did actually quite a lot of part-time teaching in that period as a PhD student. I worked in the School of Medicine teaching some ethics. I taught in the Centre for Gender and uh, Equal- Gender Studies and also in the School of Religion. But then I moved uh, to uh, the University of Leeds in the early 90s where I got my first sort of full-time permanent position and stayed there for almost a decade. What did you teach there? 
I taught uh, gender ethics and religion uh, mainly. I taught other modules or courses on gender and religion, uh, some social and political ethics as well. So all centered around the issue of ethics and uh, gender. So, so you kind of came at the law, but from a different aspect. Well, I think that's right. And actually, as I've done uh, as I've continued through my career, uh, I've begun to focus even more prominently on issues of, of religion and human rights. So I have, as you say, uh, gone into that field, but from a different direction. I would say that my interest is more on the sort of the, the more philosophical issues rather than those issues of specifically to do with law and legality, but really questions like... Um, are there fundamental human rights? How do we uh, ensure that they're protected? Are, there, are they universal and how do they intersect with culture and tradition and religion? And that's really sort of the centerpiece of what I've been doing over the last decade, I would say. And when people think about philosophy, they think that's very uh, cerebral and airy fairy or up there. But it actually has huge implications in real life, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I think, um, you know, certainly in the field of ethics, uh, we're encountering and addressing concrete ethical issues every day. And part of the role of ethics, and I think part of the role of teaching ethics, is to enable students to stand back from those kind of specific issues and think about the underlying values and the principles so that they can really articulate their own position on these key issues and then also contribute to public and policy debate on these issues. And for me, at least, uh, that contribution of academia to public and policy issues is a very important contribution that we can make. I think we need to take time out as a society, and we've seen this particularly during COVID, that we've you've had that time, that space, which we didn't see coming, but it has had some, although it's been terrible, absolutely awful COVID, it has given us time to think about the bigger picture with with regard to a lot of things, you know, gender and society and death and dying, but also, um, you know, the the environment, you know, climate change. We've had time to think about things and the importance of the arts. Yeah, actually, I think you're absolutely right. What COVID, what the COVID crisis has done is really allowed us to take a time to pause and to ask ourselves, is this the kind of society that we want to live in? What uh, is this the kind of what what kind of future do we want to for our for coming generations? And is the lifestyle that we have adopted sustainable? And, you know, the COVID crisis, you're absolutely right. It's been a terrible crisis and personal crisis for so many people. It's also really amplifying the fundamental injustices that exist within societies and between societies. So we now see, for example, that um, the numbers of people uh, falling into poverty and below $3 a day is really uh, increasing. We see similarly many of the communities that are uh, disadvantaged economically and socially and in terms of inclusion are also disproportionately affected by the COVID crisis. So I think... It is a moment where we really do, as societies and as a nation, have the 
the chance now to ask when we build, when we rebuild, how should we do this? And should can we make sure that some of those fundamental and systemic inequalities that are in the society can be addressed as we build, as we rebuild? And I do like this phrase um, of building back better, which I think captures First of all, the imperative that we have to build, but also that it cannot be and should not be just business as usual. We, we have this opportunity and we really should take it. And I'm interested in what you're saying there about the role of universities in that. Do you see a huge role for Trinity, for UCD, for the Irish universities in that? I think universities are the places where... First of all, we're educating the next generation of citizens and also the next generation of leaders. And that might seem like a cliche, but actually is true. So the people who will be populating the heads of civil service, banks, business, the arts, cultural institutions, they're all now in our university. So we have to take this chance to um, really display through our programs and through the education that they, they, they get that there are real opportunities to make an impact politically and socially as well as in their, um, as well as in their field of expertise. But secondly, I think also in terms of the research that we do, the major research, I think, uh, that is done internationally, uh, most of it comes from universities. So if universities are not leading in research, where do we think the new ideas about uh, climate, about sustainability, about gender equality can come from if it's not from those people who are, you know, advancing knowledge, making new discoveries? And I was struck... um, uh, by um, uh, Mary Robinson a number of months ago. I had the opportunity to hear her talk to the um, the presidents and heads of uh, LIRU, which is a an association of leading research universities in Europe, which um, Trinity um, two years ago um, uh, was invited to join. And in her address to the university leaders, she said exactly this. You are the leaders of the institutions where significant research leadership is happening. You must have the climate crisis top uh, of your agenda as you're doing that research. So we have immense um, responsibilities, I think, and immense opportunities. And for me, at least, it's the um, it's the the combination of the research leadership and the um, the next generation, the future generations. That's really what what we have in Trinity and in other Irish universities that we really uh, can see a real you know opportunity for impact. I think one of the areas that I know you've talked about before is the opportunity for women in academia, and particularly with with the Athena Swan. How important is it that women and that diverse groups, you know, people of all genders and people of all ages are built into the new reality, building back better, but with uh, with diversity in there? Well, I think it, it is very important. And I think 
you know, we've seen over the the last decades uh, how the inclusion of diverse perspectives really improves the um, capacity of institutions and organizations to address key issues. So for me, it really is all about ensuring that that, that diversity of perspectives is, is there um, at all levels in our institutions. It's very important also, I think, for um, young uh, women students, but also all students, to see that diversity mirrored in the institutions in which they um, are studying or working. So it's vital, I think. Uh, How do you build it into the into the pathway for people through their careers? Because that's, you know, people tend to fall off once they get to 35 you know, the, the men tend to take off and the women kind of just move sideways, whether they have children or not. Yes, so it's, it's a very big topic. And uh, I think that there are multiple answers to that. Actually, I suppose that's the first thing to say is there isn't a straightforward way of addressing this. You know, there's been so much work and effort, um, top down, bottom up over the um, years in so many different institutions that this sort of stubborn inequality still seems to be persisting. So I think um, I think there are a number of initiatives that really need to be built into the um, the the workings of the research and the teaching um, uh, in order that we um, can address some of these issues. Uh, for example. Uh, we often look at things like training, but actually I think it's all about capacity building. It's all about creating uh, the environment in which um, young academics can flourish and that needs to be an environment that is attentive to the particular ways in which gender impacts on people at different parts of their career. I think also we um, need to think about um, uh, how we can um, create, we, we need to be clearer about what are the conditions for success and then ask how do we create them. So I, I think very often we tend to look to sort of quick fixes uh, for this issue rather than looking at the systemic issues, identifying the conditions for success and then creating those around um, all of the researchers and, and academics in the university, not only the women. So, and, and indeed, I think when we talk about equality and inclusion and diversity, um, you know, in Trinity and in Irish universities in general, our universities don't really reflect the diversity of the society. It's still very white. Um, it still does not uh, have in its, um, you know, certainly in throughout academia, the uh, diversity of cultures and uh, and ethnicities either. So, and I think we're only beginning to to pay attention to that. Similarly, with um, different uh, um, physical abilities, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a long way. We have a long way to go in terms of addressing those issues of diversity and inclusion and having those um, present in all of the sort of layers and areas of responsibility in the universities. And not just a tokenism. Well, I think that's, you know, that is one of the big problems. And, 
you know, that's to do with uh, this focus on numbers rather than on capacity building, I think. Um, and of course, tokenism, whether it's uh, token women or token uh, tokenism in terms of race or ethnicity, it's very burdensome for the for the, the, the individuals who are the tokens, as well as generally not particularly productive in terms of changing things in the longer term. So are you optimistic for the future of places like Trinity? Well, I know you were on the, uh, you were vice provost at Trinity at one point, weren't you? I was vice provost, um, that's the, also the chief academic officer for a five-year period from 2011 to 2016. And uh, just to answer your question about whether I'm optimistic, I am very optimistic. Uh, I think, well, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's impossible to be surrounded by all the young people that one uh, encounters in a university like Trinity without being optimistic for the future. And I would say that one of the real sort of challenges about COVID is that one doesn't get to, to meet them, to talk to them, to interact with them. So there's a great sort of energy and optimism, at least for me, that comes from meeting the young people, meeting the students, uh, hearing about their plans, seeing their um, sort of interest in the big issues of the, the day and and the, the future of the, the planet. So I am very optimistic in that regard. I think uh, we're facing into probably very difficult time uh, over the next three or four years I uh, in universities and also um, more generally in society with the you know the financial challenges and and other challenges that are coming with this COVID crisis but um, but ultimately I am certainly very optimistic about the future. Has there ever been a woman provost in Trinity? No uh, in its 428 year history there hasn't yet been a woman provost. And is the position coming up again? It is. Uh, Trinity elects its provost every decade, every 10 years. And so this current provost, Provost Prendergast, is uh, finishing his term actually in 2021. So uh, we will be embarking on a process in Trinity um, over the next number of months of, first of all, um, the, the, the university will be interviewing potential candidates for uh, the provost role and once it has identified a number of candidates uh, through an open competition it has to be said uh, then those potential candidates will go forward into an election process for, um, for the role and the um, electorate is the mainly the academics of the university and having been vice provost, would you be tempted to go for it? Um, I would be tempted. Yes, uh, I think uh, it's it's a it's a it's an amazing role. It seems to me there are so many opportunities for development, uh, for impact. Uh, not only in terms of the kind of education we provide, but also in terms of the re- research directions we we take and. Certainly for me, uh, the the public uh, role and the public impact that we have, I'm very committed to the idea of a university for and in the public good. And um, 
uh, as a, a centerpiece, really, of liberal democracies. And so I think as we think about the future and the future of politics, of populism, you know, all of those, um, exactly in the role of science, I think universities really have to be very clear advocates for a set of values that are, you know, rooted in, you know, truth, integrity, accuracy, uh, and, and also, certainly from my perspective, committed to the public good and, uh, you know, research for good in a way. You just mentioned their research. Research is a huge part for university, isn't it? Why is that? I mean, because we all, you know, for those who aren't in academia, think, well, research is kind of a bystander, but really it's about teaching the next generation, as you so enthusiastically talked about there a second ago. What role does research have? Well, research is actually the anchor of the university, and it's also the catalyst for great programs, programs uh, and, and, and great new teaching programs that actually do teach the next generation. Of course, every subject sort of has to um, be contextualized within a, a history of the field. But really great teaching at university level is all about the next set of questions and helping students uh, and researchers to identify where the where the frontiers are, whether it's in science or in culture or understanding our history. Uh, it's all about um, really setting up the the kind of next set of questions. Where's the horizon? And and certainly, I think in uh, in research terms as well. What we've seen over the last two decades in particular is that um, so many fields, so many big questions now can't be addressed by just one field, whether it's um, you know physics or chemistry or the life sciences. They need economics, they need political analysis, they need uh, you know an understanding of history in order to really solve these big challenges that we're facing. So um, it's this it's not only the frontiers of research, but it's also the intersection of those. That's really where the universities I think excel because we're one of the few places where we have this um, range of research fields uh, at a sufficiently high and advanced level for those to be able to interact and identify and hopefully solve those big questions that we're facing. I'm interested you say that because I was at a, an event in Dundee University last year and there was a person there giving a presentation and Dundee is, is, is uh, recognised as being a centre for journalism but also video games and science. So what one of the presenters was saying is with this cross-pollination between the various different departments, they they found a way of using the game technology, so somebody's going from one level to another in a video game. But the technology and the computer programming that went into that, they were able to use in so many ways, like how the spores of fungi were distributed. They could visualize it through like the same stuff that they do. So that, that came about from cross-pollination from the intersection of different... So would you see that as a huge opportunity in Trinity? Oh, it is, and it's it's well underway already. You know, many of our, um, you know, great research institutes in Trinity are actually research institutes that bring together a number of different fields in order to try and address and solve some of the big issues. And uh, I think that uh, that's also really why... Um, 
we need strong research funding because uh, the other aspect, I think, of research is that one can't necessarily know in advance well, one doesn't know in advance where the research is going to lead. So although we can talk about um, great discovery and great impact at the end of a research process, there has to be the investment upfront in the early stages of research, some of which might go nowhere. But it's, the, it's that sort of commitment to the process of discovery uh, and often serendipity that actually is really vital for, for universities. And I think this um, funding of what we call blue skies or basic or primary research is really vital for, for universities. And uh, it's one of the things that I think uh, I would really like to see government policy really evolve on, um, because although there is indeed, uh, I think, very good support for for research in, in Ireland and through our participation in the European programmes, uh, Irish universities in, and in particular Trinity do extremely well competitively there. But nonetheless, a lot of it is directed towards the applied end of the, the research process. And um, we know that the, the, the real impact uh, that we can achieve needs also to be um, invested in at the earlier stages. And so uh, I think that's one of the big challenges that um, any next provost will have to address. So Linda, in your time in Trinity, particularly as vice provost, and I know you're very modest, so it's going to be difficult for you. But what are you most proud of? What, did, what do you think you achieved during that time in particular? Well, I think in in the time as vice provost, I certainly steered the university through a very difficult financial crisis with the core academic mission protected and intact. And that was very difficult because of the very significant decline in funding. It happened in a very sharp uh, uh, shock and uh, there was a lot of distress in the university. And I think I was certainly part of a team that really led the stabilization of the, the university and also allowed it ultimately to grow. So that's the first thing. And I suppose the second thing would be part of that growth uh, was about really diversifying our uh, funding streams and from that I was able to um, introduce 40 new blood posts uh, called the Usher Assistant Professorships to Trinity and that was something that we did in 2014. Um, uh, 40 new academic posts across the university. We had a, a competition where schools and departments pitched their ideas about where the the kind of frontiers of their discipline was going to were going to be, and uh, where they could recruit really excellent staff, and we did that. We recruited them all, um, and it's been a you know a tremendous benefit to the university because we've gotten these absolutely excellent research orientated, um, very dynamic people from across the world into these uh, lectureships. So that that was a great. Um, uh, success, I think. Um, and then thirdly, 
because I'm essentially a researcher, I think, um, I would say I'm also proud of the fact that I was able to continue my research and publish a, a book called Keeping Faith with Human Rights at that period. And actually, it was a shortlisted for an, an award at the American Academy of Religion. So I'm very pleased that I managed to keep that going um, and also to continue to engage with my PhD students at that time. No small achievement. I think people would be surprised to learn that somebody who's into such a, a theoretical area as ethics can actually manage the numbers and the finances as well. That doesn't deter you at all, does it? Not at all, actually. I mean, it's not my first uh, choice in terms of where I put my energy. But, you know, I think uh, I think you have to have a, a level of understanding of finances and fin- financial acumen, really, if you're in a senior role in a, a large organisation like Trinity. Um, obviously, uh, the finances are in service of the academic mission, but I think in order for a person to really um, have mastery, if you like, over the future of the university and its mission, you have to be comfortable uh, in that world. And, you know, I've done various courses and etc. just to, to, to be comfortable there. But you have to be. In the whole area of corporate governance. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think corporate governance is a vital area. You know, in Trinity, we're lucky uh, that we are in an autonomous institution. We are entrusted in a way with our own governance. And, you know, I think um, the principles that guide our uh, activity and uh, ensuring that all of our processes are um, you know, ethically derived that we have the proper controls and that um, we have uh, appropriate oversight and sufficient independent oversight uh, to allow us to do our business is very important. Do you think a lot of women steer away from the, the, the financial side, particularly in organisations? I think they probably do, um, though, you know, there are, I'm sure, you know, there are very large numbers of women in the financial world. But I think in university, in the university world where we're really generally driven initially by our research, whether that's religion or philosophy or psychology, uh, I think uh, then often women do shy away from those aspects of the the role and I think in order to do the role well you have to be comfortable and competent in those areas. I'm interested what you were saying there about you know women sometimes not everybody of course and there's more women going into finances now but sometimes we can be that little bit reticent about going looking after finances because it's you know we've lived with this well women will be taken care of okay so there's been a mind movement away from that what about personal finances? Would you have any advice for any young women going into academia, going into business or anything like any core principles you've even learned as a child about money? About money? Um, well, I suppose um, knowledge is power is really what I would say there. Um, that is the first thing is you really have to know um, and, and always uh, keep control of your own finances because I think that's probably one of the biggest impediments uh, for women is especially if they um, you know they're making decisions about how they're going to what the career they're going to go into how they're going to live their lives etc but if they don't have any re- make any reference to the financial aspects then I think um, that that's a, a big problem I think also um, you do need to kind of 
I, I would say, um, you know, be independent. It's, it's part of the same point, really. Be independent and knowledgeable about your finances. And if you can, you know, uh, choose a career where you will be able to take care of yourself. Are things particularly difficult for young academics, particularly young women, women academics? I think so. And I think that there's a big challenge there. As I was saying earlier, I think I feel particularly privileged that I entered uh, the the profession at a time where uh, there was, I think, a, a lot, uh, conditions were a lot better. But I think for young academics now, including for young women, First of all, the price of housing uh, in Dublin and surrounding areas is very, very high. Um, There have been pay cuts and a bit of pay restoration, but salaries are certainly not as good as they were. And uh, childcare, all of those issues um, are issues for young women and men. And so I think that the conditions of work in academia are particularly challenging for, for, for young academics today. Before we wrap up, what are your top five pearls of wisdom that you'd give to young women or young men? But, you know, for leadership, for people with ambition to lead, and is leadership a bad word? Uh, leadership is not a bad word. I think it's it's I think it's leadership is both a privilege and a responsibility in equal measure. And so I think, uh, you know, it's not a bad word at all from my perspective. I think the the things I would say are, first of all, be authentic be true to yourself know what your values are that's central for me um second thing i would say is never stop learning it's really important i think in a university you can see the how um curiosity and research and learning are actually the engines of progress and i think that's true at an individual level as well i would say be generous and compassionate in your dealings with people because you never really know what they're dealing with. I would say support and encourage younger colleagues um, because uh, it's very important. You're, you're supporting and encouraging and sponsoring and mentoring the next generation. And I think it's really vital that senior uh, people in any organization do that. And it's particularly important, I think, for, for women. And then finally, um, I remember uh, reading um, uh, the, that's a short biography, autobiography of Diane von Furstenberg, who's a you know, famous fashion designer. And uh, on one of the pages in the book, she had this quote, and I don't know where it's from, but it really struck me. She says, find the light and build around it. And I would say that from years of working in organizations and institutions, that struck me as a very important pearl of wisdom because one can spend so much time trying to deal with the obstacles and the challenges. And of course, you have to do that as a leader. But what's the focus? It's got to be about finding the light and building around it. And that, for me, is something that I've always held on to, even when I'm sort of dealing with, you know, in difficult meetings or challenging colleagues or, you know, naughty problems. It's like, where where is the light here? And then let's 
build on that and around it and then that becomes an attractor and that really is something that I think in my experience really does work I'll take that one away I love that <laughs> because it's actually it's something it's it's like a guiding principle then it's, it's it fantastic is. yeah, yeah. It um you love your fashion <laughs> I do love my fashion <laughs> what's, what's your your uh, go-to thing is it handbags shoes outfits what <laughs> All the above. <laughs> um, I'm well. Yeah, I, I I'm known for my shoes. Apparently, yeah. I, I I do. I I I think it's it's about design and beauty, and it's about you know feeling that one has uh, you know uh, one's best self on uh, you know in uh, on display. And of course, there are fantastic women designers you know through history. And um, you know, I'm very actually very interested. I read a lot of their works, biographies history etc it's a sort of a sideline really I was watching something about Coco Chanel and how she liberated the body yeah. and you know those things people say it's only fashion but it actually has huge implications doesn't even for your mental aspect well it does and I think actually um you know I'm, as I said I'm very interested in the design and the beauty and you know the textures and colors etc but uh, the other thing is I think it's becoming a really important issue in terms of fast fashion and, um, you know, the sustainability of the fashion industry. And I, you know, see a lot of great innovations in terms of, um, you know, pre-loved uh, fashion now and, um, you know, uh, actually really changing that industry in a way to return it, I think, to the, you know, fundamentals about quality and design and durability. Last question. What's your go-to song or what do you like to listen to? What's your soundscape? Well, I love the, the great Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday. Um, I, I love their voices. I, um, you know, I really enjoy the music that they sing. I'm inspired by their resilience in terms of their stories. You know, many of them all of them really came out of poverty and were extraordinarily resilient and endured a great deal of, um, you know, some of them violence, etc. But they were passionate about their their craft and their song. And that's the music that sort of echoes in my head when I'm uh, thinking about, you know, uh, big questions or when I want to take a break. And how important it is to hear women's voices in there. Absolutely, absolutely. Linda, thank you so much for doing the Women in Leadership podcast and the very best of luck with your campaign if you decide to go forward for Provost. We'll be cheering for you. Thank you very much, Angie. Well, that's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for now. Do follow us on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Email us any comments or guest suggestions to info at womeninleadership.ie. Don't forget, we're also on Twitter at Leading Women Pod. Until the next time, from me and Jim Azetti and all the team here, goodbye and take care.